Hey, Rachel, do you know what happened to Bobby DaCosta? I remember him going villain at some point. You mean the Rainfire thing? No, not that. I try to repress that. Well, I mean, he did join and later lead the Hellfire Club for a while, but at this point, I'm not sure who hasn't. Oof, following in his father's footsteps, huh? Well, briefly, but he left and came back. God, why? Nothing good ever comes out of joining the Hellfire Club. Well, they seem to have pretty good room service. You know what I mean. Yeah, and Poppy was really resistant, especially after the first time, but they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. They left a horse head in his bed? What? No, no, they offered to bring back his dead girlfriend, Juliana. The one who died way back in the New Mutants graphic novel? Yep, that's the one. Anyway, Bobby was supposed to be Black King, but then Shaw got redeposed, which allowed Bobby to ascend briefly to the rank of Lord Imperial. Is he still with the Hellfire Club? Nah. So what's he doing these days? Uh, you know, saving the world, hanging out with Sam Guthrie. It's nice to know he's learned his lesson about not palling around with supervillains. Oh, and, uh, he bought AIM. WHAT?! Rachel Edditon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 82 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So we're at a weird point in New Mutants history, that being the writer switch after 54 issues from Chris Claremont to Louise Simonson. And boy, does it get off to a rough start. It does. Okay, so Chris Claremont, for a time, was doing all of the X-Books that came out. And then when X-Factor started, that was written by Bob Layton, quickly taken over by Louise Simonson. But this is the first time that a person other than Claremont has had more than one book simultaneously. And the first time that someone's taken over a series directly from Claremont, right? Yes, exactly. There's some background to this. Simonson had written one fill-in issue of The New Mutants before, and it hadn't been published, and she was asked to take over the series for what was going to be just a brief six-month fill-in and ended up lasting much, much longer. And there were a couple editorial caveats that came with that. Yeah. Anne Nascenti, who was editing the X-Line at the time, uh, Louise herself had been editing before then, had said that they'd gotten a lot of letters from people who were saying that the New Mutants had been acting too old, that they were acting too adult given their chronological ages. So she was asked to de-age the mutants down to make them seem more like 13 and 14 year olds. And she kind of overshot. She's talked about this a lot. There's actually a great interview with her on, I think, Uncanny X-Cast that we'll link to in that, as mentioned, where she goes into a fair degree of detail about the history of the series and the beginning of her run on it. Now, it's interesting to me that letters Marvel received from their readers caused such a drastic shift in a book. I mean, I'm used to these days when the best advice a lot of writers and artists have is to not read comments on the internet about their work at all. Well... There are a couple significant differences. And the first thing I mean is that it's not really stated that the shift was made entirely because of letters. I imagine that they could have been an influencing factor, but I doubt they were the entire basis of the change. Second and more significant, we're talking about an era before the internet. And there are a couple major, major things that come into play in terms of fit and feedback here. The first is that letters at this point are part of a really long tradition, and it's a long tradition that involves a lot more back and forth than you necessarily see in letter columns now. This is a generation of editors and a generation of writers, largely, who were the last generation's letter hacks. Right, like I know that was how Joe Duffy, who wrote Fallen Angels, got started. Well, and you can go back to older comics and see letters from folks like Kurt Busiek. Actually, George R.R. R. Martin, too. Long right. before their first published work. He was just telling them to kill all of the X-Men. And those letter columns and letters to publishers were the one major vector of communication between the audience and the creative and publishing end. 
At the same time, the only people writing in for the most part were folks who were reading the comics. You didn't have the internet news cycle. You didn't have really, you know, character deaths announced in USA Today. And you didn't have Fox News coming in to opine on books that hadn't even been published yet and flooding publishers with comments from people who have no idea what the fuck they're talking about because they've never read a comic book. I have some opinions here, obviously. (laughs) And valid ones, I think. Well, and the type of feedback you get from people who write in versus people who are commenting on Twitter is really, really different. I mean, I used to edit letter columns. I used to put them together from emails and from physical letters. And the difference in the kind of commentary we got and the kind of feedback we got and the kind of interactions we had with people who actually like sat down and wrote in was really marked. And there would be ongoing conversations in the letter columns that were basically part of the record of the book of the series. I remember in Conan, there were conversations that had been going on for two years when I started on the book and continued for, you know, another year or two into my tenure on it. And, you know, the same was true with the Hellboy universe. And you get to know the people who write in because it's, it's often a group of regulars. You see their feedback. And because there's that back and forth communication often, I mean, I've talked about this and I've mentioned that if you want to talk to a publisher, you should write to them. Like that stuff gets taken seriously because people are taking the time to actually sit down and compose their thoughts and communicate them directly. It's more of an act of interpersonal communication than posting on the internet comments, which is kind of almost a performance half the time. Yeah, it's interesting. But I also have to wonder, with the letters that Marvel was getting, you know, how representative were the opinions expressed in those letters of the readership as a whole? Or was it just people who said, hey, I think this thing should change, so you should change it, whereas the people who were satisfied with the way things were just weren't writing in because things seemed fine? Well, and there's the question of confirmation bias, too. How much of what the folks were writing in about reflected the opinions of folks in editorial who wanted to see those same changes and, and, you know, were taken as confirmation that that was what the audience wanted as well. There was also a much larger readership at that point. That's true. The comics industry was a lot bigger back in the day. So this is a significant shift. It's not one that happens slowly and organically. Like, it's fairly jarring. It is, yeah, because, I mean, we have Louise Simonson, who's been specifically asked by her editor to make these characters behave in a manner that makes them seem younger, but it's just so abrupt. So going from Claremont's long run to Simonson's long run, it almost seems like two different comics titles completely. I know that's a controversial thing for a lot of New Mutants readers. Do you think that having Blevins taking over on art influences that? Because that's a major, major tonal shift for me. I think it does. Yeah, now we've seen Brett Blevins before. I think the last issue of his we covered was an X-Factor fill-in. But he has this very cartoony style that does make a lot of the characters look younger than they are. And so when we have our New Mutants art team switch from the various artists that we'd had for the last number of issues, who all have a more house style, to Brett Blevins, who is very particular in his own style, and we have the writing tone shift completely as well, it's a big deal. Going from number 54 to number 55 in New Mutants, it's kind of shocking. Well, and Blevins' type of cartooniness is one that tends to de-age characters, you know, with the larger heads, smaller bodies. The proportions become more childlike across the board. That's just a byproduct of his art style. But combined with Simonson's writing, it again, it just makes the characters feel so much younger than just the writing on its own. Exactly. So with all of that preamble out of the way, I vote we dive into the first few issues of Louise Simonson's run on New Mutants. Oh, man. I mentioned this gets off to a rough start. And... That's especially true of the first issue of her run. This is a one-shot. It is called Flying Wild. It's New Mutants number 55. And, oh God, it is so bad. Yeah, I mean, it's entertaining, but it feels a little like an after-school special, and that combined with a big tonal shift definitely left a bad taste in my mouth. It is more heavy-handed than Who's Scaring Stevie, and that's saying something. That is impressive. So what would this be? Would this be like Who's Trying to Steal Intergalactic Jewels for with Lila? Well, no, no, because the whole message of this is don't do drugs. 
and it is based around Sam Guthrie's desperate attempts to look cool for his super awesome intergalactic thief Joan Jet girlfriend, Lila Cheney. But I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves, so maybe let's talk about the way this issue starts, because I find that really interesting. We open with Sam freaking out over what to wear to Lila's big launch party, and he feels like he doesn't really have any cool outfits. When he took Lila to meet his mom, you know, she dressed up really nicely in clothing that, you know, his mother would find respectable. He wants to do the same thing. He wants to look cool for her. And as he uses his powers to blast around the X-Mansion, the dialogue immediately shows the shift that we're talking about in the characters' personalities. P.U. Stinks. Old-fashioned country bumpkin clothes. No sense of style. What am I going to wear? Really? For you, that's a significant shift? Because I feel like, you know, the P.U. Stinks part is a little bit weird, but the latter is very much in Sam's voice. But to me, the characters all seem a little bit more, I don't know, histrionic than they were. They were more even, especially Sam Guthrie. Sam has always been pretty level-headed. I mean, he's had his lack of confidence at times, certainly with Lila Shaney, but everyone seems a little bit more cartoony, I guess. Man, the character who really gets me with that actually is Danny's Danielle Moonstar Mirage. Because she was among the older of the New Mutants. I think maybe she and Sam are the oldest with Karma gone. Yeah, I think they're in their late teens, maybe 17 or 18 or so. Right. And so Danny is kind of the one in whom the change is the most marked because she's also, you know, the most self-assured and the most natural leader of the group. So we get her saying things like, look, this party's a big deal. And after all the worrying we've done about Bobby and Warlock, we deserve some fun. One desperate, mindless fling before midterms. All we want to think about tonight is music, dancing and clothes. And as this is happening, she and Ilyana Rasputin and Rain Sinclair are getting ready for the party. And she tosses this amazing outfit toward Ilyana like this mini skirt and fishnets and this bear midriff shirt and a pink boa that Danny gives her at this point. At the same time, Rain is, of course, panicking over not looking sophisticated enough. Danny uses her powers to pull Rain's dream outfit out of her head, and Eliana somehow manages to go to limbo and just sort of manifest it, which Rain's a little weirded out by because, you know, demon dress, but it's a really cool dress. It's got these great shoulder things. There's a lot of great shoulders in this issue. Brett Blevins does shoulders very well. It's kind of got this amazing, like, retro-futurist 50s sci-fi thing, because the shoulders are super science fiction, but the dress, like the actual silhouette of it is very 50s prom dress, and it's just a really good fusion of those things. I mean, I don't know if I'm a prom dress kind of guy, but if I was, I would totally wear that. You'd rock it. Oh, well, excellent. But what's interesting to me here is that one of the things that Rain does is she says that she can't accept it because it's from this evil place, and she starts going on about what uh, Reverend Craig, her former guardian and total jerk, would say about such things. He's this very conservative, authoritarian, and kind of evil uh, preacher that raised her. Worst Presbyterian ever. But what interests me is that the last Last time Rain really referred to Reverend Craig was when she basically told him off in Scotland. And, you know, she seemed to really have a good coming of age moment as she realized that this abusive voice from her past, that it belonged to somebody whose opinion didn't really matter and she wanted to be her own person. And that just seems suddenly gone. It seems like very direct backpedaling, which, again, kind of fits the tone and feel of this issue in general. It feels like we're directly losing a lot of character growth. And I could see her agonizing over accepting the stress from Limbo, but straight up invoking Reverend Craig, it feels like taking a step straight backward. Now, we do have a smaller cast we're dealing with now. Now, we mentioned Sam, and Sam was hanging out with Doug Ramsey, Cypher. Then we have the three girls we were just talking about. But the rest of the team, the rest of what is often a very large team, are not in this issue. Right. Karma has just left the team. She left in the last arc. And Amara is out sick, which is in the long, I guess, uh, Claremont borrowed tradition of shelving characters in two big casts by either giving them a cold or sending them off somewhere to watch TV. And then, of course, we have Sunspot and Warlock, who are off being busy in the Fallen Angels miniseries, which, to remind you, we love a lot. So, this is the group that makes it to Lila Cheney's party, and they show up just in time to see Lila telling off a guy named Rake. 
Yeah, R-A-E-K. You can tell he's an alien because he's got fancy hair and his name is kind of weird. I mean, that's true of a lot of mutants, too. They're all aliens. Also, everyone in real life who has those qualities. Aliens. Okay. Anyway, Lila is briefly shocked and entertained by Sam's outfit, which is very, very not Sam. I mean, it's adorable, but it's very not Sam. I mean, he has been uh, erring on the side of punk a little bit more over the last many issues, really, since meeting Lila. But this is a little more, you know, leather and studs than we typically tend to see on Sam Guthrie. I do appreciate, and I think this is something that tends to be forgotten when we revisit it, the extent to which 80s dude punk fashion was all about bare midriffs. Hey, you know, if and you kind got of gender it, neutral. If you got it, flaunt it with a vengeance. As Daniel Moonstar says, I believe in this very issue. Actually, I saw Lost Boys for the first time relatively recently, and oh, yeah. it is all about that. It's amazing. Like, I feel like there's this really specific Lost Boys extra aesthetic that I would like to see re-embraced by the fashion world. I like this plan. If anybody wants to do Lost Boys ask New Mutants redesigns, I mean, you totally can, and we will be happy. Oh, I am so into this. <laughs> but yeah, so at this party, we start seeing a little bit more of the new personalities that these five characters have been given. Now, I do want to clarify, it's not like they're completely new personalities. They're not 180 degree turns, but they do seem to emphasize certain qualities of each character a little bit more and downplay certain qualities as well. You know what? I didn't think of this when we were writing this morning, but it occurs to me now that they strike me as the Saturday morning cartoon versions of the characters. You know, that's kind of a good way of putting it. Yeah. Like these are Lydia Dietz, the cartoon versus Lydia Dietz, the live action character. Okay. Lydia Dietz, the cartoon had that amazing like spiderweb shawl dress thing and it was rad and I love it. She did. Again, cool clothes, but much broader, much cartoonier, and somewhat aged-down characterization. And I think in general, actually, that covers that transition pretty neatly. I think so. I think you're right. That's a good point. Now, we also do start seeing some new dynamics. So, for instance, Doug Ramsey and Rain Sinclair, they've always liked each other, certainly, but suddenly they're flirting really, really heavily. There's clearly interest between both of them. They're both too shy to really say much about it, and it's pretty overt. And you know, I'm not mad at that. Well, to be fair... Rain and Doug being Rain and Doug, their version of heavy flirting is mostly looking sort of nervously at each other and going, oh, God, nope, can't talk to them. It's so adorable, you guys. It's it so is. adorable. It's super cute. And so, uh, and it's, yeah. it's also super sad if you know what's coming. Oh, uh, seriously. But they go and spy on Rake because it's clear that something is up since Lila was arguing with him. And I actually really like the way that we see Cypher's powers used here. The way he gradually starts to learn languages and we get, you know, words starting to pop up as translated. Yeah, that's super rad. Now, Rake is bad news, and Rake specifically is really bad news for Sam. He wants to get Sam away from Lila. He wants to discredit him. And again, this is Saturday morning cartoon New Mutants. He does stuff like throw ball bearings under his feet when he's dancing on the dance floor. And, you know, Lila responds with her usual equanimity and aplomb. But Sam is getting more and more nervous, and he's becoming convinced that he must be screwing up. Lila must hate him. He's got to figure out what to do, which is Rake's cue to take him aside and offer him some drugs, because drugs make you cool. Here, take these. Make you feel better. You feel better, you'll act better, you dig? I am fairly sure that I have seen at least one video in, like, a school health class that involved exactly that line of dialogue. And weirdly enough, it was Rake in that video as well. I guess that's a side job, you know? Yeah, it was a really, really situation-specific thing. How strange. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Sam does, in fact, take the generic drugs. Actually, no, they're not generic. It no, does they're explain. barbiturates. Exactly. And stuff starts getting super weird. He starts seeing Lila as all monstery-looking, and everything gets fuzzy, and he goes outside for some air, at which point Rake and his similarly impressively shoulder-attired buddies take Sam and fly the hell away. What it turns out 
is that these guys want to get Lila to help them with a jewel heist that she is refusing to, and they assume that with her boyfriend out of the way, she'll be more tractable. Sam is rescued. Lila tells Rake and company to go fuck themselves, but, you know, she feels kind of bad for them, so decides, you know, she's not going to kill them, but she does let Ilyana port them to Limbo, which strikes me as kind of a dubious demarcation, considering that Limbo is currently under the control of Sim. Right. I mean, Ilyana is essentially sending them to a hell from which they can never escape and will be tortured to death until they die. Right. It's like, well, we're not going to kill them, but we're going to send them to what will inevitably be a much worse death or at best instant infection by the transmode virus. Yeah. Now, this actually brings up something I want to talk about, because I believe it's actually Ilyana who first suggests killing the alien thief types. The Ilyana in this run, in Louise Simonson's run, as much as it's sort of Saturday morning cartoonier, I think in some ways she's a lot darker than the Ilyana that Chris Claremont wrote, or at least a lot less conflicted about that darkness. That's the thing. If you simplify Ilyana down, if you get her to that, you know, bright colored, simplified version, she gets much scarier. Yeah, I mean, she's sort of gleefully evil. I'm not going to say like she's any kind of a horrible murderous sadist or anything. But she really takes pleasure in things that are just a little bit wicked, consistently. Well, and in the discomfort that that causes the people around her. Like, I feel like Ilyana's evil and her, you know, let's kill them. Like, she is very much playing a part. She's very, very cognizant of her role relative to the other new mutants. And it's very much a performance. And that continues to play that way. I actually, I really like the way Simonson writes Ilyana. She's one of the characters who ages down best because she's one of the characters who was the most liminal in terms of acting in ways that made sense to her age. And one of the ones who was one of the most sort of consistently asynchronous in terms of development as a story point. And the idea of having her just suddenly be like, well, I'm going to play with a slightly new persona makes total story sense to me, even without built context. I think that's true. And that's one thing I do want to clarify about Louise Simonson's run, even the very early part, which is probably the roughest, is that it's different, but I'm not going to say it's necessarily worse in every regard. I mean, it's a different focus. It's a more simplified feel. But Louise Simonson is an incredible writer who does characterization very well. And we're going to get to this more in a couple episodes when we talk more about her X-Factor run, which also has a lot of characters around the same age who are written very, very differently. But that pretty much wraps up 55. I mean, the everyone learns valuable lessons that you shouldn't do drugs and you should be yourself and then go off to actually have some ongoing plot. And so the ongoing plot that we jump into, this is actually going to be going for a while. Now, Fall of the Mutants, of course, is coming up. We've referred to that. But this next story is what leads directly into it. And that, my friends, is, and I use the word saga very loosely here, the Bird Boy saga. Bird Boy or Bird Brain? You know, he's referred to as both. I'm going to say Bird Boy because Bird Brain hurts me a little bit to say. And, you know, we talked about Blevins Art, issue 56, brings in one of my favorite of Simonson's collaborators. That's June Brigman. Yeah, June Brigman was the co-creator of Power Pack with Louise Simonson, and I really like Brigman's style. It reminds me a little bit of Mary Wilshire's style that we saw in uh, the Firestar miniseries. Right, she's really expressive, she's really dynamic, and she draws characters who just feel really natural and believable. And one thing, speaking of believable, that I noticed immediately is that while Louise Simonson's writing style has stayed exactly the same for the five new mutants that these stories are focusing on, it works a lot better for me. And I think part of that is that with an artist more realistic than Brett Blevins, the sort of kiddiness of the character's dialogue is something I'm much more okay with. And Brigman is also an artist with whom Simonson has been collaborating for a very long time. With Blevins at first, there's sort of a feel of disconnect or of tension between script and art, where it kind of feels like they're both working around each other a little bit. And there's none of that with Brigman. It's really seamless. Yeah, it does make me wish that Brigman had been more than a fill-in artist because Brigman and Simonson together are just stellar. So this starts in the aftermath of the party, and there are two plots that we're going to be following through it. One is the Bird Boy saga, but the other involves Magma 
and her eventual departure from the team and some interpersonal interplay with a character who we've mostly so far seen as a villain. So, you know, the characters are all in the kitchen having breakfast and talking about the party, which, of course, Magma, Amara, was not at. And so, you know, Danny is pulling the images of all the cute boys they saw out of Liliana's head. She's at this point able to use her powers a lot more flexibly, basically taking people's immediate greatest fears or greatest desires and manifesting them. And Amara thinks these guys are all jerks. She's totally uninterested. And Danny decides because we've seen this play out so wonderfully when she just reaches into people's heads without asking before, like you'd think she'd kind of learned from that. But she decides that she's like, okay, well, I'm just going to pull out Amara's greatest desire. And it turns out to be Empath. Now, Empath is one of the more prominent members of the Hellions, which are Emma Frost, the White Queen's team of New Mutant Equivalents. Empath is specifically the worst of the Hellions. He is a total raging douchebag. He is. I mean, he controls people's emotions. He can make them love him or hate each other or whatever. And he uses these powers incredibly irresponsibly, in some cases in ways that really cross a line for me and for, I think, a lot of people. Well, he does stuff that is straight up sexual assault a lot. He's also just really, really really pointlessly and gratuitously cruel. He is incredibly manipulative just for his own fun. Yeah, he has no redeeming characteristics that we've seen so far. The idea that he is this appealing to Amara, who's this character who cares deeply about things like honor, is really surprising and really jarring and I think really interesting. Yeah, and so she runs away, you know, furious and just about to burst into tears. And I mean, I can't say I blame her, saying that clearly Danny got it wrong. She pulled out her greatest hate, not her greatest love. And, you know, this dialogue that we're getting here, I know part of it's June Brigman's art, but part of it, I think, is that even in the space of going from her first to her second issue, Louise Simonson has gotten these characters' voices much, much better already. Simonson is, I think, consistently a writer who does better with ongoing stories or with multiple part serialized stories than with one shots too. And I think that might help. I completely agree. Like she's just got more room to work with these characters at this point and more space to build. And that's really where she tends to excel. So as Amara runs away, she heads to her room where she reads a letter that has been sent to her by her father, who is a senator from Nova Roma, which is a place that's stuck in kind of ancient Rome times. Long story, we talked about it at the beginning of our New Mutants coverage. Yeah, there's a cold open about that somewhere in there. I'll find it and link to it in the as mentioned. And Amara's father wants her to come home and get married. He feels like she's old enough for that. Amara doesn't want to do that, but she's not sure she wants to stay at the Xavier School either. Yeah, she talks about how she feels like she doesn't really belong. And to be honest, I think that's an impression that the readers have been getting for a long time. She kind of lacks distinct personality in a lot of ways. Like, she's a character who's gotten the short end of the large cast stick pretty consistently. And so she starts thinking about the Massachusetts Academy, where the Hellions are students, and realizing that's actually a little bit more appealing. She talks about the Academy, quote, with its servants and its luxury, and talks about, to herself, of course, how Empath has the sort of aristocratic qualities that she's more used to and that she finds very appealing. So what do you think about this? Because I feel like it could really easily be played as Amara is stuck up and horrible, but it's not. It's played really sympathetically, and I really actually kind of appreciate that here. You know, I do too. I mean, Amara is a character, like you said, who has not been characterized in very much detail over the years. So even if she does seem kind of stuck up and a little bit elitist, I'll buy that. She was raised as essentially nobility in ancient Roman culture. She would still have that. It doesn't mean she's a bad person. Like, she still is very compassionate and believes in doing the right thing and is very loyal to her friends. But it does mean that she's used to things being a certain way. And I mean, think about it. Like, you're hanging out in ancient Rome for the first something teen years of your life, and then you get taken to modern New York City. Like, that's going to be super jarring, and you're really going to miss what you grew up with. Right? Getting thrown into a world where social class is predominantly subtextual? 
for me, this is the most interesting thing that's happened to Magma probably since the storyline in which she first appeared. And so I really like this plot line. Now, as the New Mutants are thinking about the Hellions, the Hellions themselves are having breakfast at the Hellfire Club in New York City. They are up visiting with their teacher, Emma Frost, who is the white queen of said Hellfire Club. And they too are talking about the New Mutants. These are, if you haven't been following, two schools with a lot of history together and two teams with a lot of history together. They started out as rivals, they were briefly classmates, and there are a lot of cross-team friendships and rivalries still. And so the Hellions are watching the news, and there's a lot of talk of this bird creature, this sort of bird-human hybrid, a bird boy, if you will, and how in the recent scuffle in issue number, for instance, 55, the bird creature escaped, and they can see what happened. And in fact, this flashes back to a panel that we saw last issue and didn't realize the significance of. During Sam's fight with Rake and the aliens when he was trying to free himself. Well, during Sam careening around like a drunk pigeon while heavily drugged. Yes, he broke open a building, and apparently that was the building where this creature who was found in the Arctic was being held. The Hellions misinterpret this. They assume that, based on this, the new mutants must be after Bird Boy. And what that means to them is that they've got to get to him first, because everything for them is a race, is a contest with the new mutants. And so as they leave, in theory sneaking out, Emma Frost, of course, is completely wise to what's going on because A, she always is, and B, she's a telepath. And she quietly takes Empath aside and says, hey, remember what's really important? We laid down the bait. Now it's your job to spring the trap. Don't screw it up. Okay, now the Hellions are supposed to be, you know, seen and not heard and staying out of the way at the Hellfire Club. But being as how they are basically the equal counterparts to the New Mutants, they promptly do exactly what the New Mutants would do, which is ignore their teacher's dictates and fly the hell out the window. They do not, however, do so in doofy graduation costumes, so I'm going to say a point to the Hellions on this round. Yes, indeed, because the New Mutants, who have also seen this report and have been hearing about this Bird Boy on the radio, are like, well, we've got to help. They theorize that maybe Bird Boy is a mutant and they should be saving mutants, right? So they do, in fact, get their terrible graduation costumes for the purposes of sneaking out behind Headmaster Magneto's back yet again. Okay, two points. First, I'm finding myself starting to gradually get used to these costumes in what feels like some kind of weird visual Stockholm Syndrome. And second... Shouldn't Magneto just be locking these up? Because the New Mutants, like, steal them and run off with them every week. It does seem to be almost every storyline. I mean, okay, the way I look at it, Magneto is sort of their legal guardian, right? Like, he runs the school, so at least, you know, when they're at the school, he is. Isn't part of the function of parents and guardians to protect children from their own poor judgment? Like, poor fashion judgment? You know, as someone whose parents let them get away with a hell of a lot of really, really, really dubious fashion-related decisions as a teenager... I have kind of mixed feelings about that. But then again, on the other hand, my parents did not design and provide most of those horrible clothing. Like, that was pretty much on my initiative. <laughs> it's true. And so, yeah, they start to head out. Mirage goes to find Magma, who's still sulking in her room, and asks her to get the graduation costume on when Amara starts putting on the black and yellow. To which Amara responds, Why not just pull a picture of it out of my head so you know I understand? And I buy that. I mean, that kind of imperious, offended response from Amara Aquila, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think Louise Simonson gets Magma's voice better than Chris Claremont probably ever did. I'm also going to say that in this particular conflict, Amara is 100% in the right. It is really shitty to pull things out of someone's head and display them for your entire team without asking. Don't do that. That is uncool. Well, and the weird thing is, I mean, one of the first things we learned about Daniel Moonstar is that that's how her powers manifested. She accidentally did it to a friend. Many issues later, we see that same friend who hates her because of what she did and who actually ends up dying. So, I mean, I would feel like the concept of doing that would be pretty traumatic for Daniel Moonstar. So it's surprising that she does. Well, maybe she feels like the fact that she's doing it on purpose and she has some control matters. I don't know. Either way, it bothers me and I am not fond of it. 
Well, regardless, the new mutants head out, and in fact, it doesn't take them very long to find Bird Boy, who's currently diving in and out of the nearby river and catching fish in his mouth. Okay, let's talk about Bird Boy. Based on, again, the Uncanny X-Cast interview that we listened to, Simonson originally intended Bird Boy as this sort of dignified, angelic figure, kind of reserved. What we get is significantly different. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say I really enjoy Bird Boy's design. I think June Brigman did a great job of making this creature be human-ish, but clearly not human. Very weird-looking and a little bit disturbing, but also a little bit endearing in its alienness. The character itself, however, maybe not so much, and especially the character's role in the story. There's a really big difference, not in the character's appearance, but in their body language between Brigman and Blevins's later version. Brigman's is much more alien And Blevins just becomes this sort of weird, almost cartoonish slapstick thing. Like, there's a lot of physical humor based around him that's not there originally. Yeah, I've heard Bird Boy described by the blog The Real Gentleman of Leisure as the Jar Jar Binks of the X-Universe. I think that's overly harsh, but I can see where they're going with it. You know, they're not entirely wrong. If nothing else, I think that's largely a byproduct of a massively underqualified character suddenly being given huge amounts of power to direct the plot. I think that's true, yeah. But regardless, they're pondering what to do while riding on Brightwind and in Sam's case blasting, when the Hellions, of course, show up on their own method of flight, which is one of the Hellion Tarot's tarot creatures that she calls forth from her deck of tarot cards, which is the lover, which is a little inaccurate toward your standard tarot deck, but, you know, whatever. Tarot's tarot deck in general is not really a standard tarot deck, and it's such a weird power, like having it be single object based like that. I don't get how her powers manifested. Maybe there's something that she could apply with anything else, but these are just the symbols she focuses in on. I mean, that's my no prize. I feel like, you know, she could do it with any kind of method of symbolism that involved a great number of varied items within that symbolic set. Anything that she identified closely enough with or was familiar enough with? Like, so tarot in the age of Pokemon would have been something entirely different? I was thinking tarot with pogs. Tarot with Magic the Gathering cards. That would actually be awesome. Oh, man. But it would be so much copyright infringement. Oh, I'm imagining her with, like, Unhinged. That would be a beautiful thing. Red Hot Hottie and all that. Just everybody screaming all the time. No, I'm thinking like, look at me, I'm the DCI in combat. That would be beautiful. Right. Now, all of that very much aside, this becomes now a race between the New Mutants and the Hellions to retrieve Bird Boy for themselves. I'm sorry, I can't get off the unhinged train. Now I'm trying to think of how Persecute Artist would apply like as a meta thing in comic books. Oh, man. Well, just look at the internet. I think you'll see a fine example of that. No, this is great. This is incredibly cyclical because Rebecca Gay was really heavily influenced by Bill Sienkiewicz. And since she's the only artist you can't actually attack with that, like you could have her just coming in and taking over New Mutants, having this whole splinter world. This is getting really detailed. I really want this now. I want Tara to be magic, but like with a C and a little trademark symbol. (laughs) There you have it. And so, yeah, the New Mutants and the Hellions are sort of sparring, you know, like Cannonball and Jetstream are doing their sort of blast race duel. And one of the things I really enjoy about this scene as this wacky battle ensues is that Ilyana teleports away and comes back with a giant pile of fish because that's what Bird Boy's been going after. And Rain is like horrified at this. To which Ilyana responds, I'm a demon sorceress in another dimension, Rain. You think I'd let a few illegal fish stop me? I really love this dialogue. Once you get past the characters having shifted in personality so much, there's a lot of charm to be found here. Right? Again, it's a lot of fun. Saturday morning cartoon New Mutants. And so, at the very last, the teams directly confront each other face-to-face, and Empath starts trying to use his powers to control Amara, doing the whole, like, oh, you don't hate me, you really love me thing, and things get a little weird. Right, Amara manages to resist Empath's powers because they're trying to create feelings that are already there. She's got a thing for empath. And I kind of love the way the dialogue works here. Love you. Yes, I 
do love you, but you are a villain. You use people. I, I cannot, cannot love you. Aw, oh, she's straight up doing Silver Age romance comics covers. She totally is, but with more of a Nova Roman accent, which maybe is like the way I was doing it. It's hard to say. I don't know. Usually when you do Omara voice, you're just doing Storm from the cartoon. I guess that's true. They're both very dramatic. But that's kind of cool. That's an interesting story element. I mean, the fact is, teenagers fall in and out of love really, really intensely. And that's what's going on here. And I kind of buy it. I mean, yes, Empath is a horrible person, but the heart wants what it wants, even if that's not so wise. So Empath at this point uses his powers and gets Thunderbird, who's captured Mirage, to let Mirage go, thus clinching his status on Amara's good side. And it turns out that this was actually his goal, and the goal that Emma Frost mentioned at the beginning all along, to finish swaying Amara to the side of the Hellions. Right. Frost didn't care at all about Bird Boy. That was just sort of a big winged MacGuffin. So this is kind of a big complaint I've seen from people who don't like Simonson's run, especially Simonson's early run. They feel that Empath is a pure monster, and to humanize him like this by having a sympathetic character fall in love with him and have him do even slightly heroic things is inappropriate. What's your take on that? I disagree with that so hard. I feel like part of the point of X-Men, one of the strongest points of X-Men, is how consistently it humanizes monsters. That you have characters who are absolutely absolutely morally horrific. I mean, Empath is not a good person. Empath is terrible. But the fact that he's not just terrible, that he gets that degree of human complexity, is something that I really love. I mean, look at any given team lineup. Look at how many of these characters are or have been redeemed villains. God, look at Rogue. I was actually just thinking of Rogue. I mean, in her first appearance, she's super evil. She's just mean and cruel and not nice at all. Well, and her most significant act before joining the X-Men is basically murdering Carol Danvers out of spite, completely violating her mind, destroying her life, and then just flying the hell off. Like, that's what defined her as a character before she joined the X-Men. And that's something that's still there and is still part of her and still part of the character, even as a hero. I love that. And I think one of the things that X-Men does very consistently and very, very, very well is write complex heroes and complex villains. Because the thing is, almost no one is completely morally black and white. Almost everyone, even people who do absolutely irredeemably horrible things, have good qualities. And that complexity is part of what makes them interesting, but it's also part of what makes the books relatable and believable. And it's part of what makes the heroes relatable and believable to me. I mean, look at magic. Magic is basically a supervillain. Like, straight up. I'm going to go ahead and say that. Magic takes people and throws them into hell dimensions to be tortured by demons. She is largely amoral. She is basically totally chaotic neutral, alignment-wise. But she's one of the protagonists. She's sympathetic, and she's on this team of heroes. There are characters like that throughout X-Men. And the question of what makes a hero, the question of whether people are worth redeeming, and the answer is generally yes, even if ultimately they can't be allowed to be free, if ultimately their dedication to doing whatever terrible shit they're doing is a greater factor, they're almost never left entirely just straight up evil. Well, and for me, I think the best example of that in both directions is Magneto. Magneto crosses the hero-villain line a number of times, and he's at his most effective when that grayness is acknowledged. My favorite example is actually Sebastian Shaw. Sebastian Shaw, really? Because he's kind of a villain 99%. He is, but he's often written as a fairly thoughtful and sympathetic and interesting villain. And there are times when he is the character that you were clearly supposed to be rooting for. This mostly happens later than where we are in the comics right now. 
But yeah, he's a fascinating dude. He is really textured and really interesting. It would be so easy just to make these characters, you know, villain caricatures, and they're not. Obviously, some of the villains are, you know, Cameron Hodge, for example, is is just the goddamn worst. He is so evil. But for the most part, you know, the X-Men do have that complexity and that texture. It has to be universal to both the heroes and the villains to work. And humanizing empath, to me, it doesn't make him less scary, but it definitely makes him a lot more interesting, and it makes Amara a lot more interesting, too. And I think that second part's the most important part, because not a whole lot happens with empath going forward. Like, we certainly see him in many stories, but for Amara, when she does show up, like, this is a big part of where her personality goes from now, which I think is awesome. So as this confrontation is playing out, and as empath does this seemingly noble thing for Amara's benefit— Cannonball comes careening toward them while clutching Bird Boy in his arms, Ileana opens a stepping disc, and they all teleport the hell away, thus taking the Bird Boy away from the Hellions. Also, and all succeeding. of the fish. They get all the fish, too. They do get all of the fish, which have got to smell awful. Jeez. You know, I, I assume that Magneto at this point is just used to the Nubians showing up with tons of really weird shit and just being like, we don't know where it came from. I figure that guy face palms so much, he's got a bruise on his forehead like Wesley Willis. Right, exhausted resignation is Magneto's default mode at this point. And so they're at headquarters, and Mirage does, to her credit, finally take the time to apologize. Listen, Mara, I'm sorry I pulled Empath out of your head earlier. It was my mistake. The way you handled those Hellions, none of them could be your heart's desire. And Magma replies, Perhaps not, but I have to learn that for myself. That is why I am going to transfer to the Massachusetts Academy. I love how she gets more, like, incidental italics in her dialogue than everyone else put together. She kind of does, yeah. Now, this magma right here, this character who is proud and stubborn and conflicted, she really, really works for me, and I think that was a great direction to take the character, even if she is effectively being written out of the main cast of the book. But I gotta say, I really miss the old metal-as-hell magma, like the one who is mainly defined by giving super metal speeches when she was about to die. Can we get a goodbye guitar riff for her? Or, hey, wait, wait, better yet, let's see if all of her lines work that way. Perhaps not, but I have to learn that for myself. That is why I am going to transfer to the Massachusetts Academy. Though it may cost me my life, I shall be remembered and we shall succeed in transferring to the Massachusetts Academy. You know, that's a lot of paperwork. Uh, it's true, but it's metal paperwork. So, Amara's dead to us now. Well, she's almost dead to us. She's going to be leaving this issue. As we go into the second chapter of the great saga of Bird Boy, at this point, it just turns into sort of weird sitcom space. Starts off with the new mutants trying to convince Magneto that they don't really need to use the danger room. And it turns out that the reason for this is that they've been keeping Bird Boy in there, you know, trying to keep him entertained, bringing him fish, etc. Magneto is suitably, absolutely horrified by this. Go, Magneto, you're a responsible parent and or guardian. And the first thing he tries to do is use Cerebro to see if Bird Boy is a mutant, but he can't get a solid answer. It just doesn't know what to make of him. Meanwhile, the team's responses to Bird Boy are pretty divided. Rain loves him. Cypher really hates him, which is interesting to me. That seems like a really odd thing on his part. I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that from the start, Cypher is very jealous of Bird Boy. He sees that Rain, the object of his affection, is super excited about Bird Boy and feels like he's now being ignored for that reason. So he refuses to try to communicate with Bird Boy, keeps talking about reasons that they shouldn't keep him there. You know, I don't think that's all of what's going on. We've been seeing Cypher get crabbier and crabbier over the last few issues. Largely, and I think part of this and part of his reaction to Bird Boy has to be that Warlock is gone. And here is this dude who shows up who's got a lot of superficially similar traits. You know, he's awkward, doesn't really understand a lot of human customs in society. They can't immediately communicate with him. He is obviously dumb as a box of rocks, though. And while Well, Warlock, to be fair, he's a bird. He is. He's basically a bird. And I think if I were Doug looking at the way people are reacting to Bird Boy... 
you know, trying to teach him about human society, interacting with him, period. I would kind of worry that my teammates were trying to replace my best friend with a really crappy knockoff. You know, that's a valid point. Now, in the background of all of this, the New Mutants are supposed to be studying for midterms. Really, the New Mutants are generally supposed to be studying, and they generally blow it off really fast. And this is no exception. Now, I actually really love the scene in which we see them studying. They're all hanging out, you know, on computers, doing various work. And specifically, a panel that stuck with me ever since I was a kid and first read this is Magic, Ilyana, sort of balancing a pencil between her nose and upper lip, clearly being bored and killing time. And that right there is such, like, a preteen, teenager, kid, whatever thing to do. Like, it just struck me as a very realistic piece of body language that I thought Brett Blevins handled beautifully. Right. This is the place where Blevins really shines as an artist, and this is where he really works on the book. The cartooniness is great for casual moments, for expressing that, you know, again, casual body language and expression. Less good as an ongoing thing, but yeah, it's got its points where it really, really, really works. Now, at this point, you know, Magma is heading out. Emma Frost is, you know, reasonably a little bit gloaty about this. She points out that perhaps some of her kids might end up being suited to Xavier's more primitive approach. And that was originally supposed to happen, actually. Some of the Hellions were supposed to end up on the New Mutants, but that never actually came to pass. Although some of the ones who survived did ultimately end up joining the X-Men. And the New Mutants decide that they are going to cheer themselves up after Amara leaves. They're going to go see a movie. Now, here's where things get pretty iffy, because they don't want to leave Bird Boy alone, so they decide to dress him up in an oversized coat and hat and beast-sold shoes, and just, you know, bring him to the movie theater like he's a normal person. Why would you do that? And to a restaurant. And I want to point out, they're going to learn to communicate with Bird Boy later. But at this point, as far as they know, he has the intelligence and instincts of a parrot. He has shown no evidence that he understands people's stuff or that he's capable of understanding people's stuff. Like, he acts like a big fucking bird. And they're like, yeah, great, let's dress this bird in a trench coat and take him to a diner. What the hell is wrong with these children? That Saturday morning cartoon thing you mentioned, exactly that. And things, you know, predictably don't go very well because Bird Boy is obsessed with food and freaks out whenever it's around. So they, in a panic, port back to the mansion. Ooh, ooh, at least he doesn't hump any potholders. My stepmother's bird used to hump potholders. It was really weird and confusing. It was hilarious. He was so into them. And it was only ever potholders either. Like, he was really specific about it. He was a choosy bird. That thing I said about the heart wants what the heart wants? Well, there you go. Sometimes the heart just really wants potholders. I don't think that was so much a heart thing. Eh, You know, potato, potato. And so Magneto is really, really angry with him because, you know, they keep doing this. They keep making terrible choices that endanger them and everyone around them. And he's like, you know, screw it. We are going to alert the authorities. What are you kids even doing? And at this point, something actually does change, which is that Doug, who has previously been very uh, derisive of Bird Boy, very angry at him, just tries at the other New Mutants urging to communicate with him a little bit just to prove that he can't. And he can. And they start having an animated, squawky conversation about, I don't know, bird stuff, I guess. Well, specifically about Bird Boy's past, that Bird Boy has been kept imprisoned by someone who used food as a means of training him, who basically starved him when he didn't obey, fed him when he did. And Bird Boy has somehow escaped from this and ended up with the new mutants. And, you know, Doug is newly sympathetic and also, you know, likes being able to communicate with something new. Rain decides that this means clearly they can keep him. He is theirs, and he can be one of the new mutants, which is weird because, again, he still seems to have roughly the intelligence level of a standard parrot. But regardless, it apparently does work because Magneto doesn't follow through on his threats. Magneto makes strange choices. I mean, I I see not turning Bird Boy over to be returned to where he came from, but no one even knows where he came from. 
Well, they just know that he was found in the Arctic Circle. And in fact, as Rain and Doug try to teach him English words, which is eh, going okay, not so great, they try to figure out where he's from. So at one point, one of the New Mutants pulls out some old National Geographics and, and, you know, shows him different pictures of different areas and sees what he reacts to. And what he reacts to is, very positively, Greenland. And later on, as they're watching TV, very negatively, the idea of animals being caged. And he recognizes things that it doesn't make sense for him to recognize. For instance, they're watching Sesame Street, and he recognizes a tiger, which, if he's from Greenland, doesn't make a ton of sense. Unless, I guess, he was in some kind of exotic animal zoo, which actually does make a ton of sense. So I don't know why the New Mutants are so confused by that, because they know he was kept in a zoo or imprisoned. Yeah. Well, regardless, they're starting to put two and two together. They're being very nice to Bird Boy. They even give him his own New Mutants uniform, which I find kind of... I actually kind of find that charming. I'm going to go ahead and say... The question of how human Bird Boy is is a weird one for me, and it's one that I keep on sort of going awkwardly back and forth on with this, because, I mean, he's basically a bird, right? Like, what we're eventually going to learn about him is that he is a Dr. Moreau-style evolved-up bird. Kind of, yeah, but he clearly also has human-ish emotions and loyalties and things like that. Right, he's self-aware, he has feelings, he has concerns, and he's very, very worried about his friends. That becomes more and more evident as he's responding to media and as he's communicating with Doug. There's something bad that's going to happen, there's some kind of test. Now, to clarify, this is on the place where Bird Boy was kept, this mysterious location from his past with cages and people not treating animals, right, that is somewhere in the vicinity of Greenland. Right. Bird Boy's old original friends, not his weird new friends who give him funny outfits and chocolate milkshakes. Yes. And Bird Boy is more and more upset and more and more agitated about this. And finally, he just breaks the hell out. He goes to the diner and he gets a whole bunch of burgers and shakes and tries to fly to Greenland with them, which is really sweet because, again, his friends are up for some kind of horrible test and there's a decent chance they're going to be killed. We already know that he's been trained by having food withheld. And so the fact that, like, that's his first instinct is sweet. He is a good, weird bird person. And that's the reason I can't really hate Bird Boy as a character. I can dislike the direction that he takes the story because I think the New Mutants behave in a very childish and illogical fashion because of him. But, you know, he's just your average normal bird dude trying to do right by his buds. So he flies away and the new mutants quickly wake up in the middle of the night hearing the crash to find him. And this part's a little weird because I noticed they all come out in their pajamas, which, okay. But you remember how we mentioned that Brett Blevins' art style makes the characters look a lot younger than they are? That sort of big head, small body thing? Yeah, that's really uncomfortable when they're wearing, say, sheer negligees, which several of them are in this scene. Don't do that. Yeah, and that's something that I've heard as a complaint of Blevins' approach to the art of New Mutants, which is that the female characters can sometimes seem kind of sexualized, and given how young they're written and how young they're drawn, like, facially, that does give me out a little, I'm not gonna lie. When we first talked about the very beginning of this series, when Bob McLeod was the artist, one of the things that we talked about a lot is how well he does at drawing things like very non-sexual nudity. And that's been consistent in the New Mutants artists sort of the consensus of we don't sexualize these characters. They can talk about feeling sexy. They can dress up. They can talk about that stuff. But they very much have the agency in that they're not being displayed for the reader's gaze. And this feels like a very distinct shift in that regard. And it's one that really bothers me. Fair enough. But regardless, the New Mutants do eventually track down Bird Boy. They fly on Bright Winds, Danny's Pegasus. And, uh, you know, Cannonball just flies himself because he can. And they manage to track down Bird Boy and also save the bags of fast food as they tackle him to the ground. And he explains as best he can to Doug Ramsey what's going on, which is that because it's the full moon, this time of testing he was referring to, if he doesn't go and intervene, a lot of his friends are going to get killed by whatever cruel master created them and has been training them and punishing them. I think the implication is that they're going to be torn apart by monsters if they fail or that that's some aspect of the testing. 
Exactly. And Mirage is pulling these images from his head at the same time. This is sort of a two-pronged attempt at communication. And so the New Mutants are like, well, there's no time to let Magneto know. Let's go and save the day. And they charge bravely forth toward an island in the middle of nowhere via Ilyana's teleportation in what turns out to be a naive and partially doomed endeavor. And so the last time we see them in this issue, they have just materialized in a cave and discovered that they are surrounded by animal hybrid monsters. So here we go. This leads directly into the fall of the mutants for the New Mutants in the same way that the Storm and Nausea storyline leads into it for the X-Men, and we'll soon see the Apocalypse and Death storyline leads into it for X-Factor. This is how the New Mutants go toward one of their darkest hours. But before the mutants fall, you've got questions. All our August Sundays asks on Tumblr, if you could pick one non-comics writer to head up an X-Men series, who would it be? Oh man, I have like 12 answers to this, but I'm going to narrow it down to three. The first two are um, Bruce Brooks and Sherman Alexi. The third is kind of a cheat because he has written comics before, but very few, and he's not mainly known for that, and that is Tad Williams. That would actually be really awesome. I would love to see that. Have you read his comics? I think he did a series called The Next from DC. Never read it, no. Oh my god, it's fantastic. It's a lot of fun. You should totally read it. Sweet. Well, okay, I'll cheat as well, but I'll just have two. Specifically, I would love to see Susan Cooper from the 60s and 70s, like the writer of The Dark is Rising, write New Mutants. I think she would oh be phenomenal. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And I would also love to see Margaret Weiss, who used to write a lot of Dragonlance and similar stuff, do a run of X-Men, even just a brief one. All right. So um, I have no idea how to pronounce this this handle. Um, it's spelled R-E-V-Z-J. Revz. And that individual asks on Tumblr, if you could add the teenage version of another X-Man to the all-new team... Who would it be? And this is presumably referring to the new all-new X-Men title, which is the some of the original five X-Men from the 60s and some other young characters. So for me, I would say absolutely Rachel Summers. Like a younger version of her, I, I just love the idea of a shell-shocked teenager from a hell future finding a way to make the world a better place, along with people who are coming from the past and trying to do the exact same thing. I think it might also be a good way to have her be a little bit more successful than the original Rachel Summers. Her story got pretty dark there for a while. And plus, that would add the always excellent opportunity to have two characters who are the same age actually be father and alternate future daughter. Oh, creepy. I like the past-future synchronicity thing with that, too. Yeah. Well, and similarly, the other future character I might bring in would be Lucas Bishop, and that's mainly because I think a teenage Lucas Bishop would be a really fascinating, engaging character. See, my answer to this question, and I thought a lot about team dynamics on this one, and not only a character who would be cool to see pulled in as a teenager— but also one who would be an interesting fit for the lineup. And the character I keep coming back to is Storm. You know, that could be kind of awesome. Like, I want I want teenage thief Storm on this team. I think that would be so cool. Rad. So we are a listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support bring you thanks in a variety of silly voices and fictional characters. I believe I am turning it over today to Sexy Sexy Gambit which is definitely a phrase I hope I'll never have to say again. Gambit doesn't understand why Cypher's so jealous of that Birdman. If Gambit were Cypher, he'd know what he'd do. Just like his buddy Jay Wilson, he'd out-peacock the Peacock Man. A pink breastplate, some tight pants. Jay knows what Gambit's talking about. Gambit and Jay, they show the ladies what they really have up their sleeves. I'm not sure what you're implying with that last sentence, and I feel okay about that. Eh? Eh? Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. 
Our show is completely listener-supported and is ad-free, and that's made possible by our amazing Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become one of those folks, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be coming to you from the Clark County Library with our second-ever live episode at Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival. 